Fourthly, God also hardens the hearts of wicked men and blinds their minds. God hardens men's hearts. God blinds men's minds. Yet so Scripture represents Him. In developing this theme of the sovereignty of God in operation, we recognize that we have now reached its most solemn aspect of all, and that here especially we need to keep very close indeed to the words of Holy Writ. God forbid that we should go one fraction further than His Word goes, but may He give us grace to go as far as his word goes. It is true that secret things belong unto the Lord, but it is also true that those things which are revealed in Scripture belong unto us and to our children. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Psalm 105, 25. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal subtly with his servants. The reference here is to the sojourn of the descendants of Jacob in the land of Egypt, when, after the death of the Pharaoh who had welcomed the old patriarch and his family, there arose up a new king who knew not Joseph, and in his days the children of Israel had increased greatly, so that they outnumbered the Egyptians. Then it was that God turned the Egyptians' heart to hate his people. The consequence of the Egyptians' hatred is well known. They brought them into cruel bondage and placed them under merciless taskmasters until their lot became unendurable. Helpless and wretched, the Israelites cried unto Jehovah, and in response he appointed Moses to be their deliverer. God revealed himself unto his chosen servant, gave him a number of miraculous signs which he was to exhibit at the Egyptian court, and then bade him go to Pharaoh and demand that the Israelites should be allowed to go to a three days journey into the wilderness that they might worship the Lord. But before Moses started out on his journey, God warned him concerning Pharaoh, I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. Exodus 4.21 If it be asked, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? The answer furnished by Scripture itself is in order that God might show forth His power in him. Romans 9.17 In other words, it was so that the Lord might demonstrate that it was just as easy for God to overthrow this haughty and powerful monarch as it was for him to crush a worm. If it should be pressed further, why did God select such a method of displaying his power? Then the answer must be that being sovereign, God reserves to himself the right to act as he pleases. Not only are we told that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that he would not let the Israelites go, but after God had plagued his land so severely that Pharaoh reluctantly gave a qualified permission, and after that the firstborn of all the Egyptians had been slain, and Israel had actually left the land of bondage, God told Moses, And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. Exodus 14:17 and 18. The same thing happened subsequently in connection with Sihon, king of Heshbon, through whose territory Israel had to pass on their way to the promised land. When reviewing their history, Moses told the people, but Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might deliver him into thy hand. Deuteronomy 2.30 So it was also after that Israel had entered Canaan. We read, There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, save the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all other they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly, and that they might have no favor, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. Joshua 11:19 and 20. From other scriptures we learn why God purposed to destroy utterly the Canaanites. It was because of their awful wickedness and corruption. Nor is the revelation of this solemn truth confined to the Old Testament. In John 12:37 through 40 we read, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that, in order that, 
the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes, and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. It needs to be carefully noted here that those whose eyes God blinded and whose heart He hardened were men who had deliberately scorned the light and rejected the testimony of God's own Son. Similarly, we read in 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, and that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The fulfillment of this scripture is yet future. What God did to the Jews of old, He is yet going to do unto Christendom. Just as the Jews of Christ's day despised His testimony and in consequence were blinded, so a guilty churchianity which has rejected the truth shall yet have sent them from God a strong delusion that they may believe a lie. Is God really governing the world? Is He exercising rule over the human family? What is the method of operation of His governmental administration over mankind? To what extent and by what means does He control the sons of men? How does God exercise an influence upon the wicked, seeing their hearts are at enmity against Him? These are some of the questions we have sought to answer from Scripture in the previous sections of this chapter. Upon his own elect, God exerts a quickening, an energizing, a directing, and a preserving power. Upon the wicked, God exerts a restraining, softening, directing, and hardening and blinding power, according to the dictates of his own infinite wisdom, and unto the outworking of his own eternal purpose. God's decrees are being executed. What he has ordained is being accomplished. Man's wickedness is bounded. The limits of evil doing and of evil doers have been divinely defined and cannot be exceeded. Though many are in ignorance of it, all men, good and bad, are under the jurisdiction of and are absolutely subject to the administration of the supreme sovereign God. Hallelujah! For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Revelation 19.6 reigneth over all. Chapter 7. The Sovereignty of God and the Human Will. Philippians 2.13 It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Concerning the nature and power of fallen man's will, the greatest confusion prevails today, and the most erroneous views are held, even by many of God's children. The popular idea now prevailing, and which is taught from a great majority of pulpits, is that man has a free will and that salvation comes to the sinner through his will cooperating with the Holy Spirit. To deny the free will of man, that is, his power to choose that which is good, his native ability to accept Christ, is to bring one into disfavor at once, even before most of those who profess to be orthodox. And yet Scripture emphatically says, It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Romans 9 16. Which shall we believe, God or the preachers? But someone may reply, Did not Joshua say to Israel, Choose you this day whom ye will serve? Yes, he did. But why not complete the verse? Whether the gods that your fathers served, which were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell? Joshua 24:15. But why attempt to pit Scripture against Scripture? The Word of God never contradicts itself, and the Word expressly declares there is none that seeketh after God. Romans 3.11 Did not Christ say to the men of his day, Ye will not come to me that ye might have life? John 5.40 Yes, but some did come to him, some did receive him. True, and who were they? John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
But does not Scripture say, whosoever will may come? It does. But does this signify that everybody has the will to come? What of those who won't come? Whosoever will may come no more implies that fallen man has the power in himself to come than stretch forth thine hand implied that the man with the withered arm had ability in himself to comply. In and of himself the natural man has power to reject Christ, but in and of himself he has not the power to receive Christ. And why? Because he has a mind that is enmity against him, Romans 8, 7. Because he has a heart that hates him, John 15, 18. Man chooses that which is according to his nature. And therefore, before he will ever choose or prefer that which is divine and spiritual, a new nature must be imparted to him. In other words, he must be born again. Should it be asked, but does not the Holy Spirit overcome a man's enmity and hatred when he convicts the sinner of his sins and his need of Christ? And does not the Spirit of God produce such conviction in many that perish? Such language betrays confusion of thought. Were such a man's enmity really overcome, then he would readily turn to Christ. That he does not come to the Savior demonstrates that his enmity is not overcome. But that many are through the preaching of the word, convicted by the Holy Spirit, who nevertheless die in unbelief, is solemnly true. Yet it is a fact which must, must not be lost sight of, that the Holy Spirit does something more in each of God's elect than he does in the non-elect. He works in them both to will and to do of God's good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 in reply to what we have said above, some would answer, No, the Spirit's work of conviction is the same both in the converted and in the unconverted. That which distinguishes the one class from the other is that the former yielded to his strivings, whereas the latter resist them. But if this were the case, then the Christian would make himself to differ, whereas the Scripture attributes the differing to God's discriminating grace. See 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Again, if such were the case, then the Christian would have ground for boasting and self-glorying over his cooperation with the Spirit. But this would flatly contradict Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Let us appeal to the actual experience of the Christian reader. Was there not a time, may the remembrance of it bow each of us into the dust, when you were unwilling to come to Christ? There was. Since then you have come to Him. Are you now prepared to give Him all the glory for that? Psalm 115, 1. Do you not acknowledge you came to Christ because the Holy Spirit brought you from unwillingness to willingness? You do. Then, is it not also a patent fact that the Holy Ghost has not done in many others what He has done in you? Granting that many others have heard the gospel, been shown their need of Christ, yet they are still unwilling to come to Him. Thus He has wrought more in you than in them. Do you answer, yet I remember well the time when the great issue was presented to me, and my consciousness testifies that my will acted, and that I yielded to the claims of Christ upon me. Quite true. But before you yielded, the Holy Spirit overcame the native enmity of your mind against God. And this enmity, this enmity... Does he not overcome in all? Should it be said that is because they are unwilling for their enmity to be overcome? Ah, none are thus willing till he has put forth his almighty power, his almighty power, and wrought a miracle of grace in the heart. But let us now inquire what is the human will? Is it a self-determining agent, or is it in turn determined by something else? Is it sovereign or servant? Is the will superior to every other faculty of our being, so that the will governs them? Or is the will moved by their impulses and subject to their pleasure? Does the will rule the mind, or does the mind control the will? Is the will free to do as it pleases, or is it under the necessity of rendering obedience to something outside of itself? Does the will stand apart 
from the other great faculties or powers of the soul, a man within a man who can reverse the man and fly against the man and split him into segments as a glass snake breaks in pieces? Or is the will connected with the other faculties as the tail of the serpent is with his body? and that again with his head, so that where the head goes, the whole creature goes, and as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, 7. First thought, then heart, desire or aversion, then act. Is it this way, the dog wags the tail, or is it the will, the tail, that wags the dog? Is the will the first and chief thing in the man, or is it the last thing to be kept subordinate and in its place beneath the other faculties? And is the true philosophy of moral action and its process that of Genesis 3.6, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, sense perception, intelligence, and a tree to be desired, affections, she took and ate thereof the will, that's a quote from Bishop. These are questions of more than academic interest. They are of practical importance. We believe that we do not go too far when we affirm that the answer returned to these questions is a fundamental test of doctrinal soundness. First, the nature of the human will. What is the will? We answer, the will is the faculty of choice, the immediate cause of all action. Choice necessarily implies the refusal of one thing and the acceptance of another. This positive and negative both must be present to the mind before there can be any choice. In every act of the will there is a preference, the desiring of one thing rather than another. Where there is no preference but complete indifference, there is no volition. To will is to choose, and to choose is to decide between two or more alternatives. But there is something which influences the choice, something which determines the decision. Hence, the will cannot be sovereign because it is the servant of that something. The will cannot be both sovereign and a servant. It cannot be both cause and effect. The will is not causative because, as we have said, something causes the will to choose. Therefore, that something must be the causative agent. Choice itself is affected by certain considerations, is determined by various influences brought to bear upon the individual himself. Hence, volition, the will, is the effect of these considerations and influences. And if the effect, it must be their servant. And if the will is their servant, then it is not sovereign. And if the will is not sovereign, we certainly cannot predicate absolute freedom of the will. Acts of the will cannot come to pass of themselves. To say they can is to postulate an uncaused effect. Nothing can produce something. In all ages, however, there have been those who contended for the absolute freedom or sovereignty of the human will. A quote from J. N. Darby, entitled, uh, Man's So-Called Free Will, that opens with these words. This reappearance of the doctrine of free will serves to support that of the pretension of the natural man to be not irremediably fallen. For this is what such doctrine tends to. All who have never been deeply convicted of sin... All persons in whom this conviction is based on gross external sins believe more or less in free will. Back to our text. Men will argue that the will possesses a self-determining power. They say, for example, I can turn my eyes up or down. The mind is quite indifferent, which I do. The will must decide. But this is a contradiction in terms. This case supposes that I choose one thing in preference to another while I am in a state of complete indifference. Manifestly, both cannot be true. But it may be replied, the mind was quite indifferent until it came to have a preference. Exactly. And at that time, the will was quiescent too. But the moment indifference vanished, choice was made. And the fact that indifference gave place to preference overthrows the argument that the will is capable of choosing between two equal things. 
as we have said, choice implies the acceptance of one alternative and the rejection of the other or others. That which determines the will is that which causes the will to choose. If the will is determined, then there must be a determiner. What is it that determines the will? We reply, the strongest motive power which is brought to bear upon it. What this motive power is varies in different cases. With one it may be the logic of reason, with another the voice of conscience, with another the impulse of the emotions, with another the whisper of the tempter, with another the power of the Holy Spirit. Whichever of these presents the strongest motive power and exerts the greatest influence upon the individual himself is that which impels the will to act. In other words, the action of the will is determined by that condition of mind, which in turn is influenced by the world, the flesh, and the devil, as well as by God, which has the highest degree of tendency to excite volition. To illustrate what we have just said, let us analyze a simple example. On a certain Lord's Day afternoon, a friend of ours was suffering from a severe headache. He was anxious to visit the sick, but feared that if he did so, his own condition would grow worse, and, as the consequence, he wouldn't be able to attend the preaching of the gospel that Sunday evening. Two alternatives confronted him, to visit the sick that afternoon and risk being sick himself, or to take a rest that afternoon and visit the sick the next day, and probably arise refreshed and fit for the evening service. Now, what was it that decided our friend in choosing between these two alternatives? The will? Not at all. True that in the end the will made the choice, but the will itself was moved to make the choice. In the above case, certain considerations presented strong motives for selecting either alternative. These motives were balanced the one against the other by the individual himself that is, his heart and mind. And the one alternative being supported by stronger motives than the other, decision was formed accordingly, and then the will acted. On the one side, our friend felt impelled by a sense of duty to visit the sick. He was moved with compassion to do so, and thus a strong motive was presented to his mind. On the other hand, his judgment reminded him that he was feeling far from well himself, that he badly needed to rest, that if he visited the sick, his own condition would probably be made worse, and in such case he would be prevented from attending the preaching of the gospel that Sunday night. Furthermore, he knew that on the morrow, the Lord willing, he could visit the sick, and this being so, he concluded he ought to rest that afternoon. Here, then, were two sets of alternatives presented to our Christian brother. On the one side was a sense of duty plus his own sympathy. On the other side was a sense of his own need plus a real concern for God's glory. For he felt that he ought to attend the preaching of the gospel that Sunday night. The latter prevailed. Spiritual considerations outweighed his sense of duty. Having formed his decision, the will acted accordingly, and our friend retired to rest. An analysis of the above case shows that the mind or reasoning faculty was directed by spiritual considerations and the mind regulated and controlled by the will. Hence we say that if the will is controlled, it is neither sovereign nor free, but the will is the servant of the mind. It is only as we see the real nature of freedom and mark that the will is subject to the motives brought to bear upon it that we are able to discern there is no conflict between two statements of Holy Scripture which concern our blessed Lord. Matthew 4, 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. But in Mark 1, 12 and 13, we are told, And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan. It is utterly impossible to harmonize these two statements by the Arminian conception of the will. But really there is no difficulty. That Christ was driven implies it was not by a forcible motive or powerful impulse. Such was not to be resisted or refused. That he was led denotes his freedom in going. Putting the two together, we learn that he was driven with a voluntary condescension thereto. So, there is the liberty of man's will and the victorious efficacy of God's grace united together. A sinner may be drawn and yet 
come to Christ, the drawing presenting to him the irresistible motive, the coming signifying the response of his will, as Christ was driven and led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Human philosophy insists that it is the will which governs the man, but the Word of God teaches that it is the heart which is the dominating center of our being. Many scriptures might be quoted in substantiation of this. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Proverbs 4.23 4, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, etc. Mark 7.21 Hence and here our Lord traces these sinful acts back to their source and declares that their fountain is the heart and not the will Again, this people draweth nigh unto me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Matthew 15:8. If further proof were required, we might call attention to the fact that the word heart is found in your Strong's Concordance more than three times more often than is the word will, even though nearly half of the references to will refer to God's will. When we affirm that it is the heart and not the will which governs the man, we are not merely striving about words, but insisting on a distinction that is of vital importance. Here is an individual before whom two alternatives are placed. Which will he choose? We answer, the one which is most agreeable to himself. That is his heart, the innermost core of his being. Before the sinner is set a life of virtue and piety, and a life of sinful indulgence. Which will he follow? The life of sinful indulgence. Why? Because this is his choice. But does that prove the will is sovereign? Not at all. Go back from effect to cause. Why does the sinner choose a life of sinful indulgence? Because he prefers it. And he does prefer it, all arguments to the contrary notwithstanding, though, of course, he does not enjoy the effects of such a course. And why does he prefer it? Because his heart is sinful. The same alternatives in like manner confront the Christian, and he chooses and strives after a life of piety and virtue. Why? Because God has given him a new heart or nature. Hence we say it is not the will which makes the sinner impervious to all appeals to forsake his way, but his corrupt and evil heart. He will not come to Christ because he does not want to, and he does not want to because his heart hates God and loves sin. See Jeremiah 17.9. In defining the will, we have said above that the will is the faculty of choice, the immediate cause of all action. We say the immediate cause, for the will is not the primary cause of any action any more than the hand is. Just as the hand is controlled by the muscles and nerves of the arm and the arm by the brain, so the will is the servant of the mind, and the mind in turn is affected by various influences and motives which are brought to bear upon it. But, it may be asked, does not Scripture make its appeal to man's will? Is it not written, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely? Revelation 22.17 And did not our Lord say, Ye will not come to me, that ye might have life, in John 5.40? We answer, the appeal of Scripture is not always made to man's will. Other of his faculties are also addressed. For example, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Hear, and your soul shall live. Look unto me, and be ye saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Come now, and let us reason together. O taste, and see that the Lord is good. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, etc., etc., etc. Secondly, the bondage of the human will. In any treatise that proposes to deal with the human will, its nature and functions, respect should be had to the will in three different men, namely, unfallen Adam, the sinner, 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. In unfallen Adam, the will was free, free in both directions, free toward good and free toward evil. Adam was created in a state of innocency, but not in a state of holiness, as is so often assumed and asserted. Adam's will was therefore in a condition of moral equilibrium. That is to say, in Adam there was no constraining bias in him toward either good or evil, and as such, Adam differed radically from all his descendants, as well as from the man, Christ Jesus. But with the sinner it is far otherwise. The sinner is born with a will that is not in a condition of moral equilibrium, because in the sinner there is a heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and this gives him a bias towards evil. So, too, with the Lord Jesus it was far otherwise. He also differed radically from unfallen Adam. The Lord Jesus Christ could not sin because he was the Holy One of God. Before he was born into this world, it was said to Mary, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Luke one thirty-five. Speaking reverently, then, we say that the will of the Son of Man was not in a condition of moral equilibrium, that is, capable of turning toward either good or evil. The will of the Lord Jesus was biased toward that which is good, because side by side with his sinless, holy, perfect humanity was his eternal deity. Now, in contradistinction from the will of the Lord Jesus, which was biased toward good, and Adam's will, which, before his fall, was in a condition of moral equilibrium, capable of turning toward either good or evil, the sinner's will is biased toward evil, and therefore is free in one direction only, namely, in the direction of evil. The sinner's will is enslaved because it is in bondage to and is the servant of a depraved heart. In what does the sinner's freedom consist? This question is naturally suggested by what we have just said above. The sinner is free in the sense of being unforced from without. God never forces the sinner to sin, but the sinner is not free to do either good or evil because an evil heart within is ever inclining him toward sin. Let us illustrate what we have in mind. I hold in my hand a book. I drop it. What happens? It falls. In which direction? Downwards. Always downwards. Why? Because answering the law of gravity, its own weight sinks it. Suppose I desire that book to occupy a position three feet higher. Then what? I must lift it. A power outside of that book must raise it. Such is the relationship which fallen man sustains toward God. Whilst divine power upholds him, he is preserved from plunging still deeper into sin. Let that power be withdrawn, and he falls. His own weight of sin drags him down. God does not push him down any more than I did that book. Let all divine restraint be removed, and every man is capable of becoming, would become, a Cain, a Pharaoh, a Judas. How then is the sinner to move heavenwards? By an act of his own will? Not so. A power outside of himself must grasp hold of him and lift him every inch of the way. The sinner is free, but free in one direction only, free to fall, free to sin. As the word expresses it, For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. Romans six twenty. The sinner is free to do as he pleases, always as he pleases, except as he is restrained by God, but his pleasure is to sin. In the opening paragraph of chapter 7, we insisted that a proper conception of the nature and function of the will is of practical importance, nay, that it constitutes a fundamental test of theological orthodoxy or doctrinal soundness. We wish to amplify this statement and attempt to demonstrate its accuracy. The freedom or bondage of the will was the dividing line between Augustinianism and Pelagianism, and in more recent times between Calvinism and Arminianism. Reduced to simple terms, this means that the difference involved was the affirmation or denial of the total depravity of man. In taking the affirmative, we shall now consider, thirdly, the impotency of the human will. Does it lie within the province of man's will to accept or reject the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior? Granted that the gospel is preached to the sinner that the Holy Spirit convicts him of his lost condition, 
does it in the final analysis lie within the power of his own will to resist or to yield himself up to God? The answer to this question defines our conception of human depravity. That man is a fallen creature, all professing Christians will allow, but what many of them mean by fallen is often difficult to determine. The general impression seems to be that man is now mortal, that he is no longer in the condition in which he left the hands of his Creator, that he is liable to disease, that he inherits evil tendencies, but that if he employs his powers to the best of his ability, somehow he will be happy at last. Oh, how far short of the sad truth. Infirmities, sickness, even corporeal death are but trifles in comparison with the moral and spiritual effects of the fall. It is only by consulting the Holy Scriptures that we are able to obtain some conception of the extent of that terrible calamity. When we say that man is totally depraved, we mean that the entrance of sin into the human constitution has affected every part and faculty of man's being. Total depravity means that man is in spirit and soul and body, the slave of sin and the captive of the devil, walking, Ephesians 2, 2, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. This statement ought not to need arguing. It is a common fact of human experience. Man is unable to realize his own aspirations and materialize his own ideals. He cannot do the things that he would. There is a moral inability which paralyzes him. This is proof positive that he is no free man, but instead the slave of sin and Satan. Acts, John chapter 8, verse 44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts, desires of your father ye will do. Sin is more than an act or a series of acts. Sin is a state or condition. It is that which lies behind and produces the acts. Sin has penetrated and permeated the whole of man's makeup. It has blinded the understanding, corrupted the heart, and alienated the mind from God. And the will has not escaped. The will is under the dominion of sin and Satan. Therefore, the will is not free. In short, the affections love as they do, and the will chooses as it does because of the state of the heart. And because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, there is none that seeketh after God. Romans 3.11 We repeat our question. Does it lie within the power of the sinner's will to yield himself up to God? Let us attempt an answer by asking several others. Can water of itself rise above its own level? Can a clean thing come out of an unclean? Can the will reverse the whole tendency and strain of human nature? Can that which is under the dominion of sin originate that which is pure and holy? Manifestly not. If ever the will of a fallen and depraved creature is to move Godwards, a divine power must be brought to bear upon it which will overcome the influences of sin that pull in a counter direction. This is only another way of saying, No man can come unto me, John 6.44, except the Father which hath sent me draw him. In other words, God's people must be made willing, Psalm 110, verse 3, in the day of his power. As said Mr. Darby, quote, If Christ came to save that which is lost, free will has no place. Not that God prevents men from receiving Christ, far from it, but even when God uses all possible inducements, all that is capable of exerting influence in the heart of man, it only serves to show that man will have none of it. That so corrupt is his heart, and so decided his will not to submit to God, however much it may be the devil who encourages him to sin, that nothing can induce him to receive the Lord and to give up sin. If, by the words, freedom of man, they mean that no one forces him to reject the Lord, this liberty fully exists. But if it is said that on account of the dominion of sin, of which he is the slave, and that voluntarily he cannot escape from his condition and make choice of the good, even while acknowledging it to be good and approving of it, then he has no liberty whatever. He is not subject to the law, neither indeed can be. Hence they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Unquote. The will is not sovereign. 
it is a servant because influenced and controlled by the other faculties of man's being. The sinner is not a free agent because he is a slave of sin. This was clearly implied in our Lord's words. If the Son shall therefore make you free, ye shall be free indeed, John 8.36. Man is a rational being and as such responsible and accountable to God, but to affirm that he is a free moral agent is to deny that he is totally depraved. That is, depraved in will as in everything else. Because man's will is governed by his mind and heart, and because these have been vitiated and corrupted by sin, then it follows that if ever man is to turn or move in a Godward direction, God himself must work in him both to will and to do, Philippians 2.13, of his good pleasure. Man's boasted freedom is in truth the bondage of corruption. He serves divers' lusts and pleasures. Said one deeply taught servant of God, quote, Man is impotent as to his will. He has no will favorable to God. I believe in free will, but then it is a will only free to act according to nature. A dove has no will to eat carrion. A raven has no will to eat the clean food of the dove. Put the nature of the dove into the raven, and it will eat the food of the dove. Satan could have no will for holiness. We speak it with reverence. God could have no will for evil. The sinner in his sinful nature could never have a will according to God. For this he must be born again." Unquote from J. Denham Smith. This is just what we have contended for throughout chapter 7. The will is regulated by the nature. Among the decrees of the Council of Trent in 1563, which is still the avowed standard of popery, we find the following, quote, If anyone shall affirm that man's free will, moved and excited by God, does not, by consenting, cooperate with God, the mover and exciter, so as to prepare and dispose itself for the attainment of justification, if, moreover, anyone shall say that the human will cannot refuse complying if it pleases, but that it is unactive and merely passive, let such an one be accursed." Unquote. Quote, if anyone shall affirm that since the fall of Adam, man's free will is lost and extinguished, or that it is a thing titular, yea, a name without a thing, and a fiction introduced by Satan into the church, let such an one be accursed. Unquote. Thus, those who today insist on the free will of the natural man believe precisely what Rome teaches on the subject. That Roman Catholics and Arminians walk hand in hand may be seen from others of the decrees issued by the Council of Trent. Quote, if anyone shall affirm that a regenerate and justified man is bound to believe that he is certainly in the number of the elect, which incidentally 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5 plainly teach, let such an one be accursed. Quote, if anyone shall affirm with positive and absolute certainty that he shall surely have the gift of perseverance to the end, which, says Pink, John 10, 28-30, assuredly guarantees, let him be accursed, unquote. In order for any sinner to be saved, three things were indispensable. God the Father had to purpose his salvation. God the Son had to purchase it. God the Spirit has to apply it. God does more than propose to us were he only to invite every last one of us would be lost. This is strikingly illustrated in the Old Testament. In Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we read, Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. Here was an offer made, made to a people in captivity, affording them opportunity to leave and return to Jerusalem, God's dwelling place. Did all Israel eagerly respond to this offer? No, indeed. The vast majority were content to remain in the enemy's land. Only an insignificant remnant availed themselves of this overture of mercy. And why did they? Hear the answer of Scripture. 
Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all those whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. Ezra 1.5 In like manner God stirs up the spirits of his elect when the effectual call comes to them. And not till then do they have any willingness to respond to the divine proclamation. The superficial work of many of the professional evangelists of the last 50 years is largely responsible for the erroneous views now current upon the bondage of the natural man, encouraged by the laziness of those in the pew in their failure to, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, prove all things. The average evangelical pulpit conveys the impression that it lies wholly in the power of the sinner whether or not he shall be saved. It is said that God has done his part, now man must do his. Alas, what can a lifeless man do? And man by nature is dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. If this were really believed, there would be more dependence upon the Holy Spirit to come in with his miracle-working power and less confidence in our attempts to win men for Christ. When addressing the unsaved, preachers often draw an analogy between God's sending of the gospel to the sinner and a sick man in bed with some healing medicine on a table by his side. All he needs to do is reach forth his hand and take it. But in order for this illustration to be in any wise true to the picture which Scripture gives us of the fallen and depraved sinner, the sick man in bed must be described as one who is blind, Ephesians 4.18, so that he cannot see the medicine. His hand paralyzed, Romans 5, 6, so that he is unable to reach forth for it, and his heart not only devoid of all confidence in the medicine, but filled with hatred against the physician himself, John 15:18. Oh, what superficial views of man's desperate plight are now entertained. Christ came here not to help those who were willing to help themselves, no, but to do for his people what they were incapable of doing for themselves to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house, Isaiah 42, verse 7. Now, in conclusion, let us anticipate and dispose of the usual and inevitable objection. Why preach the gospel if man is powerless to respond? Why bid the sinner come to Christ if sin has so enslaved him that he has no power in himself to come? Reply, we do not preach the gospel because we believe that men are free moral agents and therefore capable of receiving Christ. But we preach it because we are commanded to do so. Mark 16:15. And though to them that perish it is foolishness, yet unto us which are saved, 1 Corinthians 1:18, it is the power of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians 1.25 Ephesians 2.1 says the sinner is dead in trespasses and sins, and a dead man is utterly incapable of willing anything. Hence it is that they are in the flesh, the unregenerate, cannot please God. Romans 8.8 8. To fleshly wisdom it appears the height of folly to preach the gospel to those that are dead, and therefore beyond the reach of doing anything themselves. Yes, but God's ways are different from ours. It pleases God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 1 Corinthians 1.21 Man may deem it folly to prophesy to dead bones and to say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Ezekiel 37.4 Ah, but then it is the word of the Lord, and the words he speaks, they are spirit, and they are life. John 6.63 Wise men standing by the grave of Lazarus might pronounce it an evidence of insanity when the Lord addressed a dead man with the words, Lazarus, come forth. Ah, but he who thus spake was and is himself the resurrection and the life, and at his word even the dead live. We go forth to preach the gospel then not because we believe that sinners have within themselves some power to receive the Savior it proclaims, but because the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, and because we know that as many as were ordained to eternal life, Acts 13.48, shall believe, John 6.37, John 10.16, note the shalls, 
in God's appointed time, for it is written, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Psalm 110.3 What we have set forth in chapter 7 is not a product of modern thought. No, indeed, it is at direct variance with modern thought. It is those of the past few generations who have departed so far from the teachings of their scripturally instructed fathers. In the 39 Articles of the Church of England, for example, we read, quote, The condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works of faith and calling upon God, wherefore we have no power to do good works, pleasant and acceptable to God, without the grace of God by Christ preventing us, that is, being beforehand with us, that we may have a good will and working with us, when we have that good will. That's Article 10. In the Westminster Catechism of Faith adopted by the Presbyterians, we read, quote, The sinfulness of that state whereinto man fell consisteth in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of that righteousness wherein he was created, and the corruption of his nature whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good, and wholly inclined to all evil and that continually. Answer to question 25, unquote. So, in the Baptist Philadelphia Confession of Faith of 1742, chapter 9, we read, Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So, as a natural man, being altogether averse from good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Chapter 8 God's Sovereignty and Human Responsibility Romans 14.12 So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. In chapter 7 we considered at some length the much debated and difficult question of the human will, we have shown that the will of the natural man is neither sovereign nor free, but instead a servant and slave. We have argued that a right conception of the sinner's will, its servitude, is essential to a just estimate of his depravity and ruin. The utter corruption and degradation of human nature is something which man hates to acknowledge, and which he will hotly and insistently deny until he is taught of God. Much, very much, of the unsound doctrine which we now hear on every hand is the direct and logical outcome of man's repudiation of God's expressed estimate of human depravity. Men are claiming that they are increased with goods and have need of nothing, and know not that they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Revelation 3.17 They prate about the ascent of man and deny his fall. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. They boast of the free moral agency of man when in fact he is in bondage to sin and enslaved by Satan, taken captive of him at his will. 2 Timothy 2.26 But if the natural man is not a free moral agent, does it also follow that he is not accountable? Free moral agency is an expression of human invention, and as we have said before, to talk of the freedom of the natural man is to flatly repudiate his spiritual ruin. Nowhere does Scripture speak of the freedom or moral ability of the sinner. On the contrary, it insists on his moral and spiritual inability. This is, admittedly, the most difficult branch of our subject. Those who have ever devoted much study to this theme have uniformly recognized that the harmonizing of God's sovereignty with man's responsibility is the Gordian knot of theology. The main difficulty encountered is to define the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Many have summarily disposed of the difficulty by denying its existence. A certain class of theologians, in their anxiety to maintain man's responsibility, have magnified it beyond all due proportions until God's sovereignty has been lost sight of, and in not a few instances flatly denied. Others have acknowledged that the scriptures present both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, but affirm that in our present finite condition and with our limited knowledge it is impossible to reconcile the two truths, though it is the bounden duty of the believer to receive both. The present writer believes that it has been too readily assumed that the scriptures themselves do not reveal the several points which show the conciliation of God's sovereignty 
and man's responsibility. While perhaps the Word of God does not clear up all the mystery, and this is said with reserve, it does throw much light upon the problem, and it seems to us more honoring to God and His Word to prayerfully search the Scriptures for the completer solution of the difficulty, and even though others have thus far searched in vain, that ought only to drive us more and more to our knees. God has been pleased to reveal many things out of His Word during the last century which were hidden from earlier students. Who then dare affirm that there is not much to be learned yet respecting our present inquiry? As we have said above, our chief difficulty is to determine the meeting point of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. To many it has seemed that for God to assert His sovereignty, for Him to put forth His power and exert a direct influence upon man, for him to do anything more than warn or invite would be to interfere with man's freedom, destroy his responsibility, and reduce him to a machine. It is sad indeed to find one like the late Dr. Pearson, whose writings are generally so scriptural and helpful, saying, quote, It is a tremendous thought that even God himself cannot control my moral frame or constrain my moral choice. He cannot prevent me defying and denying him, and would not exercise his power in such directions if he could, and could not if he would, unquote, from Pearson's A Spiritual Clinic. It is sadder still to discover that many other respected and loved brethren are giving expression to the same sentiments, sad because directly at variance with the Holy Scriptures. It is our desire to face honestly the difficulties involved and to examine them carefully in what light God has been pleased to grant us. The chief difficulties might be expressed thus. First, how is it possible for God to bring His power to bear upon men so they are prevented from doing what they desire to do and impelled to do other things they do not desire to do and yet to preserve their responsibility? Second, how can the sinner be held responsible for the doing of what he is unable to do? And how can he be justly condemned for not doing what he could not do? Third, how is it possible for God to decree that men shall commit certain sins, hold them responsible in the committal of those sins, and adjudge them guilty because they committed them? Fourth, how can the sinner be held responsible to receive Christ and be damned for rejecting him when God hath foreordained him to condemnation? We shall now deal with these several problems in the above order. May the Holy Spirit himself be our teacher, so that in his light we may see light. Firstly, how is it possible for God to so bring his power to bear upon men that they are prevented from doing what they desire to do and impelled to do other things they do not desire to do and yet to preserve their responsibility. It would seem that if God put forth his power and exerted a direct influence upon men, their freedom would be interfered with. It would appear that if God did anything more than warn and invite men, their responsibility would be infringed upon we are told that God must not coerce man, still less compel him, or otherwise he would be reduced to a machine. This sounds very plausible. It appears to be good philosophy, and based upon sound reasoning, it has been almost universally accepted as an axiom in ethics. Nevertheless, it is refuted by Scripture. Let us turn first to Genesis 20, verse 6. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me, therefore I suffered thee not to touch her. It is argued almost universally that God must not interfere with man's liberty, that he must not coerce or compel him, lest he be reduced to a machine. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. 
We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.